Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 292. Uh, I received a question recently about Ukraine, not about the war itself and not about Russia and Ukraine and not about what's going on there, which I've talked about here uh, recently, but simply over the fact that the United States it, uh, appears to be more and more involved in it. We've provided lots of money, lots and lots of money and weapon systems and so on. Uh, and the war continues to drag on, right? And I was uh, asked recently, what about uh, conscription? Suppose we get dragged into a war such that ground forces, uh, American ground forces are committed and let's say things go haywire and the draft comes up. So what do I, what do I think about the draft? What do I think about conscription? If we look at biblical law, one of the things that we can see is that under the Mosaic Code, it was legitimate for the magistrate to muster all the troops. So if you were of combat age in Israel, you had to be 20 years old, 20 years old and up. I think maybe it went up to 50. But if you were in that age cohort, if you were of a warrior's age, you could be mustered. If there was a war brewing or if invasion was imminent or something was happening, the king or whoever the existing authority was could muster the troops and gather everybody together and count noses. And, but then here's the, the interesting thing. In Moses' Israel, they did not have mandatory service. In other words, you could not conscript someone to go to war. You could muster them and see that they were there, but if they were, if they were recently married, they could be allowed, they got an exemption, they could return home. Or if they simply said, I don't want to fight, I don't, I don't want to be involved in this, they could simply go home. And the pressure that would be applied to them, if they were being a coward or if they were just being lame, the pressure that would be applied to them would be social pressure. Um, the opinion of their peers, and not legal pressure. So uh, I, I believe that in, when a war, if a modern war breaks out, I believe that conscription, drafting, your, drafting the individuals for your army or navy, I think is uh, ungodly, just, just not right. If your cause is wildly unpopular with the people, you are drafting people to go fight in a war they don't believe in, which is basically slavery. And if the people are wildly in favor of the war, then conscription is unnecessary. So after Pearl Harbor, for example, in World War II, after Pearl Harbor, conscription, I, in my view, simply would be unnecessary because all sorts of men wanted to join. So one of the best things I think you can do is maintain a volunteer army and not have a conscripted army. Now, this leads to the next question. Suppose we've got a war going on in, um, in Ukraine, 
And suppose conscripted troops, American troops, are being placed there, being placed in harm's way. What are Christians to make of this? Well, the difficulty is, uh, if you are a Quaker or a Mennonite, and you have a conscientious objection to fighting across the board, then in our legal tradition, you have, you have the liberty to, to bow out. But if you, if you have a, a, a conscientious objection only to unrighteous wars, if you're not a pacifist, in other words, uh, you're going to have to take your lumps. And if you are thoroughly convinced that the war is unrighteous, or if you're thoroughly convinced that whether or not the cause is righteous, the cause is none of our business, and you decline to serve, then you're going to be in a legal battle. And at the tail end of that legal battle, at least as things are currently configured, you're not going to win. So that's the, that's the lay of the land. Another closely related thing uh, should be this consideration, and that is, what about conscription of our daughters? So that, I think, is a threshold that Christians cannot allow, cannot allow the authorities to cross. Our daughter, basically, it's an abomination to conscript women for combat. In Deuteronomy 22.5, it says, uh, basically, it prohibits transvestitism. A man shall not wear the apparel of a woman, and the, the woman should not bear kali gibber, uh, the gear of a warrior. So, uh, that's, that's the basic uh, structure of it. I don't think conscription is ever righteous, but there are times when it becomes a monstrosity. Always will be God. So, going on with podcast 292, last week in our hamartiology section, we considered zealos, D-Z-E-L-O-S, zealos, rendered usually as envying. Today, we come to the verb form, dzleao. This is the verb, but not surprisingly, it remains just as sinful. Actually, just like last week, it can be sinful or not. And uh, well, just like last week, it can be sinful or not, depending. But when it is sinful, it is just as sinful. The first place we're going to look today actually has both senses, and it's and it's quite striking. Both senses in one place. This is in Galatians four, seventeen and eighteen. They zealously affect you. These are the false teachers. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you, that ye might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing, and not only when I am present with you. So the false teachers zealously affect you, and it's good, it's good Paul says, to be zealously affected, but only in a good thing. So this kind of zeal, zeal in an evil cause, is envious, malicious, biting. Uh, zeal in a good cause is uh, just as consuming, uh, but it is righteous. So the false teachers at Galatia were zealous in their desire to corrupt the faith of the Galatians, which is obviously sinful. And Paul then adds that to be zealously affected, depending. All right, it is good to be zealously affected, depending. For example, a zeal for repentance would be entirely good. Revelation three nineteen: As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So, being zealous for that kind of um, repentance is a good thing. 
But then we come to the sinful definition, and both passages that refer to this come from the book of Acts. And both of them refer to the sins of the patriarchs against their brother Joseph. The first one is in Acts 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So the patriarchs are moved with envy. Zle'ao. They're moved with envy. And then this is uh, given to us again, ten chapters later in Acts 17.5. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. The patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, and the Jews who refused to believe uh, started a riot, started an uproar in Acts 17. God don't never change So we continue with uh, the podcast, episode 292, and um, the book I'm commending to you uh, this go-round is Life After Capitalism by George Gilder. I'm a big fan of Gilder's. I've uh, followed him for many, many years. He's written in many different arenas, many different areas, uh, technology being one and uh, free enterprise uh, being another. He is has been a, a moving force in the intelligent design movement, and he's also written, uh, I think, very wisely on gender issues, sexual issues. So his early book is, back in the 70s, he wrote a book called Sexual Suicide, which later was made over and re- and released again under the title of Men in Marriage. And Canon Press is in the middle of releasing a new edition of Men in Marriage by, by George Gilder. But this book, just out, by, is called Life After Capitalism. Now, what uh, Gilder is emphasizing here is uh, something that he touches on at the end of his other book called Knowledge and Power. Wealth is, according to Gilder, wealth is knowledge. Wealth is knowledge. We are distracted when we think that wealth is money, and the distraction is understandable because when you get a pile of money, let's say you get a bonus uh, in your paycheck, you can cash that check and you can put the money in your wallet and you can and you can go buy a bunch of stuff that you've been wanting to buy but when you buy these things what you're doing is buying the knowledge of other people that knowledge is instantiated in their labor the things they make the products they make but the if there were no knowledge there'd be no wealth so the silicon chip, uh, the, the uh, Gilder says early on in the book, the silicon chip is as cheap as dirt because it is dirt. The uh, main elements that make up uh, the silicon chip are some of the most abundant elements on the planet. He says it's, <laughs> this is cheap as dirt because it is dirt. And, and what is it that turns this dirt into something that can navigate you through a strange city or can look up a resource in a library on the other side of the world. Well, the thing that makes it go is knowledge. Wealth is 
knowledge. There's another element to this, um, to uh, Gilder's argument, and that is we should we should uh, reckon the um, the cost of things in time. Okay, what what's the true cost of things? So when you have, um, let's say, how many minutes or hours would it take if if you lived in 1700? How long would it take for you to purchase? one hour of light after the sun goes down. The sun goes down, and you want to stay up late reading a book, or you want to stay up late playing cards with a friend, or you know you want to stay up late past sundown. And in order to do this, you have to buy light. How long would you have to work in order to buy that hour of light? Okay, well, back then, it would be hours. Today, it's something like a fraction of a second. So the, co- the cost of light has plummeted. The co- so there are a number of elements like this where, where the, how long does it take to, on average, earn a loaf of bread? Or how long does it take to earn an hour of light? And Gilder argues that the real cost is we, sh- we shouldn't confuse the length of something with the measuring stick used to measure the length. So uh, this is a provocative book, and he points out how uh, many capitalists have been too focused on the stuff. Now, of course, the capitalists are, when it comes down to a, a debate or a collision between the capitalists on the one hand and the commies on the other, of course, always go with the capitalists. The capitalists are going to be able to run societies that that put food on the table. But over time, you're leaving out a crucial element, and this is why capitalist societies, uh, secularist, godless capitalist societies, have all the meaning go out of everything. You, you, every the world is shaped by the word, and Gilder is really good at pointing to to things beyond a mere material transaction. So Life After Capitalism promises to be one of Gilder's um, more provocative books, and I commend it to you.